Okay, now I'm recording. <laughs> and now my mic- my microphone is kind of in front of my face. Yep, that's where it's supposed to go. It's supposed to. What? Yeah, what did this Oh shit, didn't you know that? No. Oh what my the heck? god. How, how would I know that? That explains so much about our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Okay, okay. What did we do yesterday? We did something super cool. That kind of ties in with our story just a teensy bit, a at little, least with mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, mine. Oh, does yours too? Just... Close-ish off by like 10 years, but it's fine. Oh, that's well, not that bad though. Like four years. That's Yeah, that's really not that no, bad. I can't remember. Seven years. We'll say seven. It was between the 20s and the 30s. Yeah, I'm seven years before that. Oh, okay. It started, like, 16, so really, four years. Three. Okay. Yeah, like, early, early prohibition started, like, 16. Anyway, the <laughs> um, one of the libraries here in Louisville was doing a um, speakeasy. So we decided to get all gussied up and go. And we got compliments all night. Yeah, it was really weird. <laughs> Not used to it. I really enjoyed it. It was it was nice. We so they had a lady who was dressed amazing. Her dress was yeah. fantastic. And she was like walking around giving out people fortunes and they were like they look like Fortune, fortune like cookie. fortune cookies. Yeah. yeah, they look they look like they were from fortune cookies, but they had like specific sayings that were from like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. It was super cool. What else? They had a local coffee chain there that was selling coffee, and people love it. It's for oh, all yeah. the hipsters. Go them, I guess. They, they also had foods like finger foods. I had the salami. Like I was going to say, you went straight for the salami. I really did. I was like, oh, salami. <laughs> and and I, w- I personally was just waiting to get out of there because I wanted real food. <laughs> yeah. They did also have um, little, like, gambling spots where people oh, yeah, were playing uh, poker, I think. They also had um, a magician. Did they? I guess it was, a, it was like a card trick magician. Oh. Yeah. That's cool. It was super cool. Like, I saw it out of the corner of my eye, and I was like, hmm. I didn't see that. He was uh, showing one of the couples. Why didn't you tell me? Because I thought you saw it. He was, like, right in front of us. No. No. There were there was a lot going on, so I didn't really, like. They also had these little mocktails that were called, like, the Great Gatsby, the Bee's Knees. The Fizzy Flapper. The Fizzy Flapper, yeah. It was pretty fun. I really enjoyed the bee's knees. Wait, is that the one I got? Yeah, because I didn't get the I Gatsby. I did not enjoy the bee's knees. I did. It was too tart. I but feel like it was too much cranberry juice. See, I like cranberry juice, though. I liked the bee's knees. 
You just said it was too tart. Not the bee's knees. This is a great Gatsby. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like trying to envision the board and the order of them. And, uh, I liked the fizzy flapper that was very, it was very tropical. Oh, yeah. I didn't try that one. It was very good. I liked it. And then I got this juice. beer that I thought I would like and halfway through it, I decided it was no longer good. And I tried to tell her that it was because it was canned and the stuff settles. But, um, I don't know. I'm not a huge beer person, so. Me either. That's why I didn't get one. Yeah. Anyway, afterwards, we were like, where can we go dressed up like this? And, of course, the answer was Applebee's. Applebee's. Of course. The other answer was Tumbleweed, but we went for Applebee's. Tumbleweed would have been good, too, but they would have known that the speakeasy was right there. Yeah, true. So they wouldn't have been that surprised. Yeah. Versus Applebee's, we got so many, oh my gosh, what are you guys so dressed up for? Yeah, I was expecting people to be like, oh my god, or did you all go to prom? I know, right? I was really expecting, because the dress that Rachel wore was her prom dress. It was my prom dress, and it fits me better now than it did when I was in prom. When I was in prom. In prom. In high school. <laughs> <laughs> I just wore some high-waisted pants and a button-up shirt. You suspenders. looked snazzy, though. The shoes were the, the s- best part. There are yes. these, like, black loafers where the top is, like, shiny and the heel is shiny. They were so cool. But also just shiny shoes in general are super awesome. Yeah. But yeah, people were complimenting us all night. I think my favorite compliment was the guy as we were leaving Applebee's. He was like, you all look fly as hell. I was like, I love you. And he was like, I saw you guys walk in. And I was like, damn, I didn't get to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> so we were walking out. He's like, killing it. it. Yeah, that one definitely made my night. He was so nice that he honked at us as he drove by. <laughs> and we just bust out laughing. Oh, he was yeah, a nice was dude person i don't want to assume yeah don't assume why are you assuming genders because societal expectation has forced me to do that now valid they them all the way grace i try i try (laughs) personally i go by uh, she her pronouns so yeah yeah okay (laughs) welcome to our podcast i'm rachel I'm Grace. We are Myths and Misfortunes. Yes, we're a paranormal and true crime podcast. And each week we pick somewhere different in the world and base our stories on that place. Sometimes not that place. (laughs) Sometimes not that place. I think we did good this time, though. This time, yeah. Yeah. This time in the next two episodes, actually. Speaking of, where are we for the next three episodes? Well, Chicago, Illinois. We were like... Rachel wanted to do this story, I wanted to do one story, but the story that I wanted to do also had a paranormal side, mm-hmm. and so we are like, well, we'll just do that together, but Rachel's like, I still want to do this episode, and so it just sort of <laughs> turned into three episodes. This is going to be a fun three weeks, guys. Just so FYI. I don't have to do history next two weeks, and neither does Rachel, so. Yeah. You got one history, then the rest is just... Chicago. <laughs> Yeah, which I mean, to be fair, to be be fair, we do give a little bit of history whenever we're doing our stories. A little bit, yeah. For instance, I delve just a little bit into history on mine. (laughs) I kind of do. I mean, I do the history of what mine is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, Chicago. Chicago. 
Chicago. I don't know why I keep doing that. I don't know either. <laughs> okay. My sources for this story were, or history, is history.com, Britannica.com, Chicago.gov. I do have to say, I like that you say Britannica and I say Britannica. Britannica. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Just some things that I've noticed. Yeah. Britannica. Britannica? Britannica. I also enjoy that we tend to use the same websites. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the first couple of things that show up, I use it. I don't go to page 10. <laughs> I'm sorry. I definitely had to go to page 10. <laughs> I don't. I can't do page 10. Chicago. Chicago. The name Chicago comes from a... I think it's... This is Miami Indian. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Algonquian. Oh, okay. A word for the wild leeks that used to grow on the bank of the Chicago River. There's Hmm. a leak in the boat. Uh, Over the centuries. (laughs) It's the Miami or Algonquin. Sock, Fox, and Potawatomi tribes all lived in that area. Okay. The first non-Indian to settle within Chicago's future boundaries was a Santo Domingan of mixed African and European ancestry, Jean-Baptiste Point... <laughs> Point du Sable. 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 Something Sable. French. Looks like Sable. Sable. Who arrived in 1780. Moving on. <laughs> in 1803, the U.S. Army built Fort Dearborn on the south bank of the Chicago River. It was destroyed in a Indian raid in 1812, but was rebuilt four years later. Chicago, Illinois was founded in 1830 and quickly grew to become the largest city in the Midwest. It was established as a water transit hub, but the city eventually evolved into a more industrial epicenter. All right. Uh, which, like, included processing and transporting raw materials from the area. Mm-hmm. The 1832 Black Hawk War ended the last Native American resistance in the area, and Chicago was incorporated as a town uh, the next year, and eventually as a city in 1837 when its population population Lachin. when its population reached 4,000. Woo! In October of 1871, a fire destroyed one third of Chicago and left more than 100,000 homeless. Oh. How it started remains unknown, but it was fueled by drought, high winds, and wooden buildings. Mm-hmm. The factories and railroads were pretty much fine. Yeah. And the city rebuilt surprisingly quickly. The 1886 Haymarket Affair, in which police fired on protesting workers and in confusion following a fatal anarchist bombing mm-hmm. each other, ushered in an era of protest and reform for workers who kept Chicago's meatpacking, manufacturing, and shipping industries running. World War One brought many African-American migrants to Chicago from the South in search of new opportunities and the vibrant cultural community soon gave birth to Chicago's version of blues and jazz. Ooh. Do you like jazz? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> uh, tensions between the new African-American groups and Chicago's established Irish, Polish, and German ethnic groups led to a string of bombings of African ho- African-American homes between... 1917 and 1921, as well as an eight-day race riot in 1919. Mm. That sucks. Yes. Chicago became notorious during the Prohibition years of the Roaring Twenties as a wide-open town, gaining a reputation for corruption, 
gangsterism and intermittent mayhem. <laughs> gangsterism. Yes. Gangsterism. Uh, by the 1930s, Chicago's population reached 3 million. As factory jobs leveled off between 1950 and 1960, Chicago's population lessened and people moved to the suburbs. Poor neighborhoods were torn down and replaced with public housing, and that basically solved nothing. Oh, yeah. There were riots in 1968 in response to anger following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and the police response to anti-Vietnam War protesters was pretty violent at the Democratic National Convention that year. Mm -hmm. Today, Chicago remains a center of trade and has one of the busiest airports. The city is known for its theater and, of course, music, with seven uh, downtown and lakefront major music and dance festivals. More than 30 food festivals, over 400 neighborhood festivals, and more than 40 film festivals annually. That's awesome. They also have the Museum of Science and Industry, which is the largest museum of its kind in the Western Hemisphere. That's also awesome. Really would like to go to. Yeah. Also, interesting fact is that Lori Lightfoot was the city's first African American woman mayor and its first openly LGBTQ mayor. And she was a elected to succeed as mayor in 2019. Go Lori! Yeah. All three citywide elective offices were held by a woman for the first time in Chicago history. In addition to Lightfoot, the city clerk was Anna Valencia and city treasurer was Melissa Conyers Evan. Irvin. My bad. Irvin. Irvin. (laughs) All right. Some quick fun facts about Chicago. The nation's first skyscraper. (laughs) Skyscraper. Shit. It's a sky creeper. Sky crapper. <laughs> uh, the nation's first skyscraper, a 10 story steel framed home insurance building, was built in 1884. Uh, it was also demolished in 1931. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The start of the historic Route 66 begins at Grant Park on Adams Street in, the, in front of the Art Institute of Chicago. Chicago was the birthplace of the refrigerated rail car, mail order retailing, the car radio, the TV remote control, the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction, which is pretty cool. I'm sorry. You said mail order and my mind went to mail order bride. God damn it, Rachel. (laughs) So I didn't focus after that. Car radio. Cool. TV remote control. (laughs) The first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction, which ushered in the atomic age. Um, Maybe not whoop, something. It's, it's interesting. Very interesting. Um, the 100, 100, Jesus, 1,451 foot Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, completed in, was completed in 1974. And it was the tallest building in the world from 1974 to 1998. Ooh. And that's Chicago. (laughs) Well, Chicago is, in fact, a very interesting place. Yes. And has to be if we're doing three episodes. There's just... (sighs) There's there's a lot. Yeah. I think we just really liked the stories that we were doing, and we didn't want to have to wait for them. You are correct. And it just sort of lucked out that we had picked a certain number. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep, that, yes, yes it did. 
All right, so our first story in our three-parter Chicago. Chicago. Which I wanted to do back on Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, my God. Yay, not yay, but yay. Uh, oh, wow. My like source... that's more of a proper reaction. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. My sources are Wikipedia, history.com. Encyclopedia.chicagohistory.com, AtlasObscura.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, TheMobMuseum.org, ChicagoTribune.com, Independent.co.uk, and NationalCrimeSyndicate.com. Oh, wow. And not going to lie, people, I mainly use (laughs) NationalCrimeSyndicate.com. Yeah. Also, also, a little bit of fun at the end, um... I used an episode of Ghost Adventures. <laughs> so, how very fitting that we went to a speakeasy party last night. I know. Because my story just so happens to coincide with the Prohibition era. Yeah. I wish I could say that we planned that, but... Um, we definitely did not. It just sort of happened. <laughs> okay, for those of you who don't know, if, if you are listening from outside of the U.S., The Prohibition era was a time in U.S. history where the 18th Constitutional Amendment banned the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, and that lasted from 1920 to 1933. And during this time, speakeasies became very popular among U.S. citizens of all classes and races. However, some speakeasies were often part of organized crime. Hmm. And that is where we are segueing into the actual story. I threw myself off because it's spelled Segu. Segu. Wow. Segu. The north and south sides of Chicago were at war with each other. Gangs of each side were struggling to gain power and control of the city. In fact, between 1924 and 1928... There were so many gang-related killings. Shit. Like, so many. The most infamous, of course, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Wow. But before I get into that, how about a little bit of history, huh? Sure. Didn't really have a lot for mine, so... (laughs) Okay, well, this, of course, starts a little little dramatic. So, North Side leader Dean O'Banion and South Side leader Johnny Torrio had strained relations from the beginning. Obviously, you know, two different gangs fighting to control the city. Two gangs, both alike (laughs) in dignity. They are the Romeo and Juliet of the gang war. Anyway, yeah, there's going to be issues. They're fighting over the same area. Yeah. However, O'Banion and Torrio both own shares in the Sabine Brewery. I don't think I pronounced that right. Also, yeah, I know they're flipping their shit. Oh, we didn't say anything in this episode. Guys, just assume I still have the chicks in my room. Because she does. They're still chirping away. Yeah, I do. And they like to peck at the walls of their container. Yeah. Which is what they're currently doing. Anywho, when O'Banion learned that there was going to be a raid on the brewery, he decided to set up Torio and Torio's second-in-command, Al Capone. Ooh. He was wanting them to take the fall 
and he did so by selling his shares to them for half a million dollars. Oh, wow. Torrio accepted, and when the raid happened, he, Capone, and six other Southside members were arrested. Fuck. However, you do not screw over Cal. Cal. Cal Lapone. <laughs> not Calzone. Not me. <laughs> you do not screw over Al Capone. No, you don't. No. Apparently, he ordered a hit on the North Side leader, which was carried out by Frankie Yale, John Scalise, and Albert Anselmi. Ob- so, so he didn't order a calzone? <laughs> no, he did not order a okay, calzone. I'm done. I'm done with it. I'm done. O'Banion was assassinated in his flower shop in November of 1924. It's always a flower shop. It's always a freaking flower shop. Jaime Weiss took over as the North Side leader. He, but I'm, I'm sorry, just I skipped a section because I didn't write it down. Jaime Weiss, Bugs Moran, and O'Banion were really, really good friends. Mm. So, okay, back to it. He, Bugs Moran, and mobster Vincent Drucci, in an attempt to avenge their prior leader, opened fire on Johnny Torrio in January of 1928, outside of his apartment. Dang. However, before Weiss could fire the last fatal shot, he ran out of bullets. (laughs) The trio then left the scene before they could be spotted. During his recovery, Turio decided to give up his life as gang leader. At this point, Al Capone took over the Southside crime gang in Chicago. Just a few short months later, the North Side gang made an attempt to overpower the South Side mm. again by targeting Al Capone in September of 1926. Ooh, you thought. Al Capone and his crew were having lunch at the Hawthorne Hotel in Cicero when six cars drove by and opened fire. Six? Six. Dang. Six. Thousands of bullets shattered the glass windows in just decimated the walls. One of the North Side gang members, Frank Gusenberg, yep, jumped out of one of the cars, stood in the doorway of the restaurant, and, lo- and unloaded a 100-round drum from a Tommy gun. Holy shit. Yeah. Capone survived, obviously. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of stuff happened after this. Damn. And he then exacted his revenge on the Northside gang the following month when two gunmen of his gunned down Jaime Weiss. Oh. With a machine gun. They Uh, really liked their machine guns. Yeah. Weiss was taken by surprise and was unable to defend himself when he was... Sorry, I had a funny joke. It's a gangster staple. (laughs) It's a gangster staple, yes. (laughs) Uh, okay. As Weiss began to fall, his bodyguard fired off shots in just the general direction of his... Jeez. Of his assassins. Yeah. How do you... Uh, yeah. But then he accidentally shot Weiss again. I was about to say... <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrible for him because... Oh it, my yeah. god. <laughs> so... By the end of 1926, Tooth Southsiders had survived attempted hits, while two Northsiders had both obviously been very killed. Yeah, very killed. 
Very much killed. A gangster by the name of Bugs Moran, as mm-hmm. I've already mentioned, took over as leader for the North Side in 1927. He then ordered the hit on Jack Machine Gun McGurn, who was thought to have been one of the shooters who killed uh, Weiss. Yeah. Yeah. Jack apparently survived all of the attempts on his life. Damn. Good right? for him, I guess. Bugs Moran then formed a partnership with Joe Aiello, who was a rival to Capone, mm. and organized the death of Antonio Lombardo, Union Sicilian president for Chicago, in 1928, and then Lombardo's successor, Pascalino Lollardo. <laughs> Lolordo, <laughs> sorry, Lolordo, mm-hmm. in 1929. Apparently, after the death of these two men, Jack McGurn went to Capone, with, and that they, they wanted to come up with a plan that they hoped would take out Moran for good. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Like I said, I mainly used that one yeah. crime syndicate. Yeah. McGurn was apparently the mastermind. He covered all of the minor details, even managed to trace the North Side's headquarters back to a garage the, that was behind the offices of SMC Cartage Company. Oh, dang. At 2122 two, North Clark Street. Wow. Very specific, right? Yeah. McGurn then came up with the wonderful idea of dressing his hitmen in police uniforms so that the Northsiders wouldn't suspect any foul play. Mm. I mean, that's kind of smart, but, like, shitty. <sighs> yeah. Well, he took it one step further and used gunmen who were from out of town so that they wouldn't be recognized. Double smart. He then stole a police car and mm. the two uniforms in order to finalize the plans. Wow. That's commitment. McGurn then instructed a local booze hijacker to contact Bugs Moran and tell him that he had obtained a shipment of, this is very specific. They're having a brawl. They're having their blast, yes. A, A shipment of old log cabin whiskey, which he would sell to the gang for a low price of $57 a case. $735.22. Oh. So not as much as I was expecting. I was expecting like $150. No. <laughs> okay. The date and time for the meeting were then set February 14th, 1929 at 10.30 a.m. at the Northside Gang headquarters. I can already tell this is not going to go well. <laughs> well, I mean, it is called the Valentine's Day Massacre, so. Are massacres not a good thing? <laughs> really? Look, it's been a day. It has been a day. Seven men were present for the meeting and waiting for the arrival of their boss and the booze hijacker. Frank and Pete Gusenberg, who were the gang enforcers. James Clark. I'm sorry, I thought you said gay enforcers. <laughs> they were the gay enforcers, guys. They got to enforce the gayness. <laughs> yes, sometimes you have to. <laughs> okay, uh... James Clark, Moran's second-in-command. Adam Hayer, the gang's bookkeeper and business manager. I would be terrified to have that job. You're literally just an accountant. And you're, yeah, and you're in a gang. Albert Weinshank, who managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran. Hmm. Uh, 
John May and Reinhardt Schwimmer were not actual gang members. Oh. Um, they were just collaborators who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ooh, that's rough, buddy. Yeah. May was a car mechanic for the gang, and Schwimmer was an optician who was associated with the gang after giving up his practice. Oh. So, Moran was not actually present at the time. Mm. However, the gunmen who were hired by McGurn believed he was. It has been said that Albert Weinshank. I'm hoping it's Weinshank. Otherwise, it's Weinshank. And I prefer (laughs) Weinshank. Get shanked. Albert Weinshank had a very similar appearance to Moran. Uh, right down to the clothes that he wore. Oh, wow. Specifically on that day. Mm. Do you think he went there as like a double? It's possible, in oh, my opinion. Okay. It's possible. The This mistaken identity is what set the following events into motion. Mm. The four hitmen followed these seven men into the garage. The first two dressed in police uniforms, while the other two waited close by mm-hmm. in order to come when they were called for. Oh, okay. Believing that this was just an ordinary police raid, the men obediently did as the policemen told them, lining up against the wall with their backs turned ready, you know, for a pat down. Yeah. I'm sure at that point they were fairly used to something like that happening. Oh, yeah. Once the men's weapons were handed over... The two other hitmen entered into the garage carrying Tommy guns. Shit. The seven men had two Tommy guns, a sh- sawn-off shotgun, and a forty-five caliber pistol, all pointed at them with when gunfire ensued. Oof. Roughly 150 shots were fired at them. Shit. With an average of 15 bullets in each of them by the end of the shooting. Oh, God. And you know what? I bet, like, as soon as those police officers walked in, or the fake police officers walked in, if they had been local, they would have immediately known that he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Probably. Because everybody else would probably recognize him. Mm-hmm. Shit. The shooting actually continued even after all seven men had fallen to the ground. Oh, my God. Well, they have to du- double tap. I get that. Damn. John May and James Clark were then shot with a sh- with the shotgun in their faces, oh literally obliterating their faces. Holy shit. Like, I feel so, I feel horrible for these guys. In an attempt to prove that everything was under control, the two hitmen who were dressed as officers walked out with guns pointed at the backs of the other two in civilian clothes who had their hands on their heads. Right, yeah. <sighs> The only survivors were John May's dog, Highball, Aww. and Frank Gusenberg. When the real police arrived shortly after, they asked Gusenberg who shot him, but he only answered with, nobody shot me. Even dying. No, Damn. He kept true to the mob code of silence. Fuck. I would have been petty. I'd be like, it was this mother... Well, I guess he wouldn't have known they, anyway. Yeah. He thought that it was just policemen. Yeah. Oh. Well, poor guy. He, I mean, he died three hours later, so he had to suffer for another three hours. Oh. They found Highball trapped under a beer truck covered in blood and shell casings. 
God. And he was actually the one who alerted the neighbors to the garage with his howling. Oh, they heard the howling, but they didn't hear the... (laughs) Well, remember, they had the policeman come out with those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. But because of the the trauma he went through, they had to put him down. Oh. Like, this poor baby had PTSD from it. Why wouldn't you tell me that? I'm sorry. I needed you to suffer like I did when I read that part. Rude. Moran, by the way, was still alive, obviously. Yeah. Uh, He had been running late for the meeting, and when he and fellow gang member Ted Newberry had taken a shortcut up a side street, they saw the police car approaching the building. When they saw that, they just kept on going. Nope. They just immediately backtracked and went to a nearby coffee shop instead. Well, that's what I meant. Like, they just kept on. Oh, yeah. They just, like, do, 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 do. I'm not here. Oh, wow. Not involved. (laughs) Damn. Anyway, after the massacre, Moran made a public statement condemning Capone. Ooh. This, among other reasons, meant that the investigation focused primarily on Al Capone and his affiliates, the Purple Gang. Mm. However... The members of the Purple Gang that were suspected and interviewed were cleared completely. Oh, wow. Much of the public actually believed that the police did it as a scare tactic to other gang members. Oh, shit. Yes. Ultimately, no one was ever arrested. Not McGurn, not Capone, not any of the other members of the several other gangs. However, it is believed that the hitmen were Fred Burke... John Scalise, Albert Enselme, and Joseph Lolordo, who was the brother of one of the men that was killed by the Southside hits. Uh, However, there is another theory. Mm, aliens. I wish. That would have made it so interesting, too. Uh, however, there are theories that there was an elite group used by Capone for high-risk jobs uh? known as the American Boys, Ooh. consisting of Fred Burke, who was already a suspect, right? Gus Winkler, Fred Goats, Bob Carey, Raymond Nugent, and Claude Maddox. However, no action was taken by the FBI agents against these men because everyone suspected to be involved with the actual killing was cleared. No. No? They were all dead by 1935. Oh. With the exception of Burke and Maddox. Dang. Fred Burke, however, was arrested years later for a different crime. Ah. But two machine guns were found in his Michigan bungalow. Hmm. When they were tested, they were confirmed to have been used in the massacre. However, he still denied all involvement in the shooting. Of course he did. Uh Uh-huh. Both guns are still in possession of Barron County, Michigan Sheriff's Department. Jeez. The St. Valentine's Day massacre marked the end to any gang opposition to Capone's rule in Chicago. Wow. However, it can also be seen as the beginning of his downfall. Hmm. He had a highly effective crime organization, impressive income, and a willingness to ruthlessly eliminate his rivals. He had become the country's most notorious gangster, and newspapers even dubbed him public enemy number one. Jeez. When Capone failed to appear before a federal grand jury in March 1929, federal authorities began to investigate him. 
when he did finally appear in court, he was arrested for contempt of court. Yeah. He posted bond and was released only to be arrested again two months later on charges of carrying a concealed weapon. Wow. (laughs) He served nine months in prison and was released on good behavior. Of course. Of course. He was sent back to jail in February of 1931 on that contempt charge. He was found guilty and sent to Cook County Jail for a six-month sentence. It was then during this time that the U.S. Treasury Department began an investigation on Capone for Mm -hmm. tax income evasion. Yep. So, guys, please file your taxes. This is a really stupid reason to go to jail. the longest that you should wait, max, is three years. You have to do it. I'm not saying wait. I'm saying do your taxes. (laughs) No, no, I'm just saying if you're gonna wait, if you feel the need to wait, just don't go longer than three years. Any accountant will tell you not to wait. Anyway, he was indicted in June of 1931 and then convicted in October. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison, first in Atlanta, then in Alcatraz, Mm -hmm. which is why I said that's a story I need to do. Yeah. And he was then released in 1939. So the garage that the massacre took place in was demolished in 1967 and is now a parking lot for a nursing home. The bricks from the wall in which the victims were shot, however, were purchased by a Canadian businessman by the name of George Pate. For many years, they were displayed in crime-related novelty displays. However, Pate really wanted to make some sort of money off of them. But convincing potential business partners to do this was kind of difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. (laughs) And he wound up auctioning brick by brick roughly 100 pieces to crime history buffs. Wow. The remainder of the wall, however can now be found in the Mob Museum in Vegas. Oh, really? Which is a three-story building with a shit ton of information about any and all mob-related stuff. That's really cool. Yes, it is. Speaking of Mob Museum, in Season 1, Episode 2 of Deadly Possessions, hosted by Zach Baggins. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think it's Baggins. I think it is, too. But I like Baggins better. (laughs) Okay. Bagpipes. Bagpipes, yes. Hosted by Zach Bagpipes. They do a real quick investigation with the wall. Apparently, there is some paranormal activity that goes on. Oh, wow. They also have right next to the wall a gun that was owned by McGurn, Mm. who, as I said, was supposedly the brain behind the massacre. Right. So one of the stories that was told to Zach and his team was that apparently one night while closing down the museum... A tour guide had spotted a man walking around, and when she followed him around a corner, she realized he was no longer there. Spooky. During the investigation, they do a real quick EVP session where they place a microphone that's in a suction cup against the glass that the brick wall is behind. It's actually really cool. And after a few questions, the museum guide feels a really cold presence on her left shoulder, Mm. at which point Aaron takes an EMF reading and it jumps from point one to point three. 
So, I mean, that's not, not a, a high jump. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's not a high jump. Once. Shoot, no. When it can go up to, like, 15, no. Uh-huh. Uh, but it is kind of weird that it's it was on her shoulder mm. and not near any electrical stuff. Can Whatever. we buy one and use it at your house? This is an old house. You'll probably find a lot of stuff. <laughs> do it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, when, when they finally reviewed the audio for their EVP session, they caught something. Ooh. And all they did was slow down the audio in order to, like, actually hear it. Apparently, Mr. Ghosty was a very fast talker. <laughs> yeah, see? They talk really fast back then, see? Yeah, exactly. The EVP is heard to say, help, I'm dying. What oh, is shit. happening to me? Mm-hmm. Zach believes that this is a residual energy speaking out to them, but he also believed that it could be intelligent because it answered his question. What question? Uh, it was like, it was like, who are you? What are you doing here? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> and that is it. That is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. All right. What is your story? My story today is all about... Merd. Oh, wait, no, that was mine. That was yours. <laughs> <laughs> My story is about the Hull House. Oh, or boy. Or the Hull House Devil Demon. Baby. Yes. Okay, so my sources for this are HarrietAlonzo.com, ObscurinLegend.Fandom.com, ChicagoNow.com, Wikipedia, TheParanormalGuide.com. TheParanormalGuide.com? ParanormalGuide. Oh, Guide. I heard Guy. Uh, (laughs) uh, The Long Road of Woman's Memory by Jane Addams, and an article written by Jane Addams in The Atlantic... um, on the Atlantic.com. I mean, she didn't write it for the .com. She wrote it a long time ago in 1916. Oh, okay. But it's on their archive okay. for the Atlantic. So. So. Hull House is considered to be one of Chicago's most haunted buildings. There are reports of ghosts, but the most popular legend is a lot stranger than that. Okay. But before we get into all of that, let's start with the history behind Hull House. The building itself was built at 800 South Halstead Street in 1856 by a wealthy real estate developer named Charles J. Hull. Hence the building name. Hull House, yeah. The neighborhood was supposedly fairly upscale, so he built the house and moved in with his his wife. His wife? His wife and children. Unfortunately, Hull's wife passed away. Uh, leaving him to care for their two children, who also passed away within a decade of each other while they were still young. Oh. A few months after his wife died, it was reported that her ghost had begun haunting the bedroom she died in. Creepy. Yeah. After Hull left the house, he, um, the Little Sisters of the Poor and a used furniture store occupied the building and claimed that Mrs. Hull continued to haunt the room. Hmm. Yeah. The house itself uh, survived the Chicago fire of 1871, but soon afterwards the area became um, sort of like very populated with immigrants. Oh, and yeah. And the, pop- the reputation of the area went downhill because more and more people started moving into the area, so mm-hmm. it became less and less like desirable. Yeah. Quotation which I don't like to say. Yeah. But desirable with quotation marks yeah 
In the mid-1780s, the house became a home for the elderly poor and probably saw a lot more deaths during that time. Oh, yeah. Although many more mysterious events took place in the building, like small and explainable fires, the appearance of a woman in white who is thought to be Mrs. Hall, mm-hmm. uh, and there were figures seen about the halls, curtains refusing to stay closed in one of the empty rooms, it wasn't until 1913 that an event an event began that saw Hull House enter a more mysterious side of Chicago's history. Hmm. In 1889, Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr founded Hull House as a settlement house where they provided education and services to the city's working class and new European immigrants. Basically, immigrants from many nationalities and cultures could come and take part in programs and classes to allow them better footing in, yeah. you know, the new country. Yes. The programs were such a success that more buildings were built on the property in order to spread the program and allow them to branch out. Within four years, the settlement house had everything. It had clubs and functions, a day nursery, a gymnasium, a dispensary, playground, and a cooperative boarding house for single women, single working women. Oh, that's awesome. Adams felt uh, that the community benefited from theater and established an amateur theater in the Hull House in 1899, where the crowds were often multicultural, which wasn't too common at the time. Mm-hmm. By 1907, the complex had 13 buildings and a children's summer camp outside the city. The house and its workers sparked many reformations in Chicago. By 1913. Yeah. Uh, this is when the story of the devil baby of Hull House started oh. spreading. Unfortunately, no one in the Hull House knew anything about it. One day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one day, uh, three Italian women rushed through the door and demanded that one of the workers show them the devil baby. Okay. Obviously, the worker was confused and told them she had no idea what they were talking about, but no amount of denial convinced them that he wasn't there because he knew exactly what they looked like, what he looked like. What did he look like? Well, they told the worker... They knew about his cloven hooves, pointed ears, and his little tail. And, of course, they knew how the devil baby had been able to speak as soon as he was born and was shockingly profane. (laughs) Well, wait, I'm confused. Where did devil baby come from? We'll get there. Ah! Okay. But this was only the beginning, for, because for six weeks afterwards, visitors from every part of the city and the suburbs came to see this supposed baby. Mm -hmm. The doorbell buzzed nonstop, the telephone rang off the hook, and lines of people stood outside Hull House demanding to come inside all day and so far into the night that it was nearly impossible to do the necessary everyday tasks or to tend to the many programs scheduled to take place. Mm -hmm. So, Adams learned that in the story, there was supposedly an infant monster born out of sin. And the type of wrongdoing committed... To cause that baby to be born out of sin is just depended on who told the story. Adultery. Well, <laughs> in the Italian version, um, with I mean there are multiple versions of each. Yeah. Version. Weird. Um, a pious Italian girl married an atheist. Her husband tore up a holy picture from the bedroom wall, saying that he would as soon have a devil in the house than that. 
So the devil incarnated himself in her coming child. Because that's what the devil listens for. Yeah. As soon as the devil baby was born, he ran about the, uh, around the table, shaking his finger in deep reproach at his father, who finally caught him and in fear and trembling brought him to Hull House. When the residents there, in spite of the baby's shocking appearance, wishing to save his soul, took him to church for a baptism. When they approached the holy water, they found that the shawl was empty and the devil baby ran lightly over the backs of the pews. However, they were able to recapture the baby and had it locked in the attic of the house. And what year was this? 1913. But the actual people at Hull House have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's said, it's said that this version, uh, that the story inspired the book uh, slash movie Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. In the Jewish version, again with multiple variations, mm-hmm. uh, it was to the fact, basically said that a father of six daughters had said before the birth of a seventh child that he would rather have a devil in the house than another girl, whereupon the devil baby promptly appeared. <laughs> Was the devil baby at least a boy? (laughs) Oh, I guess so. Yeah. There were versions about an unwed immigrant mother having the child. Others had weird details, including a red automobile, and some included a cigar, which the newborn child snatched from his father's lips. I mean, let's face it, if you're smoking a cigar by a baby, I hope it smacks it out of your lips. I don't think they knew back then. I know. They didn't know. Okay. But in every version, the child was captured and taken to Hull House. Yeah. Adams said that the story seemed to spread like an old wives' tale, one of those myths that travels over time. She said, I suppose a deformed baby was born somewhere on the west side that to see the way otherwise intelligent people get themselves carried away by the ridiculous story is simply astonishing. If I gave you the names of some professional people, including clergymen who have asked you ab- asked about it, you would simply not believe me. <sighs> Adams recounted that as the weeks passed, she would hear a voice at the telephone repeating for the hundredth time that day, No, there's no such baby. No, we never had it here. No, he couldn't have seen it for 50 cents. We didn't send it anywhere because we never had it. <laughs> I don't mean to say that your sister-in-law lied, but there must be some there must be some mistake. There's no this one's interesting. I've never heard people say stuff like this. There's no Sue getting up an excursion from Milwaukee. Sue, I think they mean like there's no point um oh. coming from Milwaukee cuz there isn't a, any devil baby at Hull House and um, oh yeah. We can't give you reduced rates because we're not exhibiting anything. Yep. And so on and so on. Visitors soon became more and more belligerent. They would say, why do you let so many people believe it if it isn't here? (laughs) We've taken three lines of cars to come here, and we have as much right to see it as anybody else. (laughs) Oh my god, people. I know. They would say, this is a pretty big place. Of course, you could hide it easy enough. I mean, (laughs) this definitely sounds like a bunch of Americans. I mean, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them. Well, actually, a lot of them. Not all of them. Yeah. And what are you saying that for? Are you going to raise the price of admission? Basically, they were all pissed. A majority of those passing along the story were women. Mm. Most of those were older women, and it was a serious matter for all of them. Uh, Most 
Oh, so actually most were immigrants who had been ripped away from the uh, village life and forced to basically live in big cities. Yeah. So a lot of them worked hard at menial jobs throughout their entire lives, and so many of them were stressed to the point of a mental breakdown. Adam said that these older women were particularly vulnerable to the devil baby myth. A lot of them took risks to see the devil baby. There was an elderly woman who basically escaped from a poorhouse to come see him. Oh, no. She had no money and was physically disabled and had planned her escape for days so that she wouldn't be noticed as she left. (sighs) She told Adams that her mother, who had spent her life in Ireland, had possessed the second sight and heard a banshee cry out three times in her life just before someone passed. She had apparently heard the banshee once herself, and she offered her expertise to Adams that she could help find meaning in the baby's appearance. Hmm. Unfortunately, Adams had to disappoint the lady and be like, sorry. Yeah. But Adams went through this a lot. Many amazing women came to see the devil baby, but instead told their story. She wrote that because the devil baby often embodied um, an undeserved uh, wrong to a poor mother whose child had been claimed by the forces of evil, just the rumor of the child's presence at the Hull House had attracted hundreds of women who had been disgraced by their husbands and children. Women who were victims of domestic abuse and mothers of disabled children, criminals, and sex workers, who all probably felt like they were shamed and blamed for these things, all flocked to Hull House to see this child. It seemed that for once a story was being told about a man who was responsible for an ill-begotten child, and he was receiving his just desserts. Yeah. Their version of the story was often about the father of the devil baby who had married an innocent woman without confessing a hideous crime committed years before. Yeah. So in doing so, he deceived both his bride and the priest. The sin had become incarnate in this child, which to the horror of the trusting mother had been born with all the physical aspects of the devil himself. Oh. I think it was like catharsis for them. Like, a lot of the time we project things that we're going through on the stories that we're hearing about. Yeah. Um, which a lot of them are, like, turned on their heads so we can sort of see, feel like a sense of, not relief, but, like, validation a little bit. Similar to, like, why we feel the need for, like, representation in stories because we want to see the things we've gone through but see them turn out better. Yeah. And Does see other sense? people go through them. Right. Yeah. So, other women use the story to influence their daughters' and granddaughters' abusive relationships. They convince them to take their husbands to Hull House in the hopes that witnessing the reality reality of the devil baby would scare the husbands into decency and kindness. That's gonna scare the husbands straight. <laughs> yeah. Adams later wrote, Maybe seeing the devil baby would make those who drank too much or cursed or abused their wives and children to stop doing so. If they didn't, Perhaps they would be responsible for bringing a devil baby into the world. What story could be better than this to secure sympathy for the mother of too many daughters and for the irritated father, the touch of mysticism, the supernatural sphere in which it was placed, would render a man quite helpless. Mm -hmm. So, although the story spread far and wide, it took that entire, nearly that entire six weeks for the story to even reach the newspaper. So everything was going by word of mouth. Like, none of it was in the newspaper until that six-week mark. 
the Chicago Examiner wrote an article that basically put an end to all of the storytelling. Yeah. People found no evidence of a devil baby or even a deformed baby born in the neighborhood. And just like that, it seems everything went back to normal. All it takes is one story in the newspaper. I guess so. Many people think that perhaps, um, like, a baby with deformities was taken in the house and that rumors just spun out of control, but, um, neighborhood residents still say that on certain nights you can see an evil face of a little boy peering out the top floor window, (laughs) and there are a number of reports concerning the sound of a child's cry coming from the attic and the gardens during most recent renovations. It's a tulpa. Everything's a tulpa. (laughs) And while she did actually believe the house was haunted by Mrs. Hull, like, she actually believed that, but Adams wrote in her autobiography that the story of the devil baby was completely false. But it did change the way that she looked at aging and poverty, especially for women, and it gave her insight into the world of tradition and myths and the power of superstition, and she used it as a way to discuss the plights of immigrants in the community. Over the course of her lifetime, she published 11 books and hundreds of articles addressing the pressing issues of her time. Mm -hmm. And for her work, she earned the 1931 Nobel Peace Prize just four years before she passed away. Hull House is now a museum, uh, and they have a lot of programs surrounding women's issues. Yeah. I was telling Rachel earlier, they had an event at the beginning of this month for Women's History Month. And the quote, it says, like, describing it. It said that they're highlighting women at Hull House, their relationships with each other and their self-expression through the arts. Learn about the arts and activism of Hull House social reformers, including co-founder and bookbinder Ellen Gates Starr, and shop Chicago-based artists with vintage items, queer crafts, and vivacious designs. Explore Jane Addams as a queer historical figure and learn about her lifelong partnership with social reformer Mary Rosette Smith on a gender and sexuality tour. Participate in button-making activities so you can wear your voice throughout 2020. Listen to a story about gender fluidity and expression in our children's corner. Make your own block prints with printmaking artists. And I'm, I think I'm going to say this wrong. Okay. The Mary Macha Monarch. Mary Maka Monarca Press. Come enjoy a cute day full of sun, snacks, and learning for all families. I'm, like, in love with this place. Vivacious designs of the devil baby. Shut up. Anyway, that's the story of the devil baby of Hull House. So they, this first started with Italian nuns? No, just women. Just these three random women who ran into the house and were like, we want to see the devil baby. Nobody knows how it really started. It's just like a random thing. Because I tried to. It's a game of telephone. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. But like, there was no. It seems like there was no actual inciting incident because nobody can. Nobody knows, like, who apparently birthed this baby or, like,. I don't, like, nothing about it. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything. But yeah, there was, I just, I tried looking for anything, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing. And I mean, she wrote a bunch of books, and in a lot of the, in some of those books, she talked about Hull House like that, and she had one that was like, uh, 20 years at Hull House, Mm -hmm. or something like that, and 
Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Wow. Because, like, she didn't know where it originated either. It was just these three random women who she ran showed in. up on your door. Yeah. And it's like, where did you hear about this? Oh, I heard it from so-and-so. Who heard it from so-and-so? Just, like, regular wives' tales go, so. I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction and be like, oh, yeah, they were doing construction and they found a deformed baby skull in the wall. No. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that would have been really cool, but no, when they did construction, they just heard a bunch of, like, child's cries and stuff like that. Which you're going to hear regardless, because yeah. he lost his children, too. So That, too, yeah. So, yeah. well, I don't know that they died there. I think they might have died after he moved from Hull House, oh. but I do know that she died there and that people have reported seeing her ghost. So. I was going to say, yeah, that... I, they they could have gone back so to the So they might have been mother. hearing her crying. That yeah, they could have. I don't know. But also but... they could have gone back to where sh- their mother was because that's where they felt the safest. Yeah, because if you think about it with a whole bunch of other hauntings. Um, True. And I don't know for a fact that they didn't die there. That's yeah. just as far as I know. Okay. But well, yeah. Um that was interesting i just really enjoyed that um we took that turn towards the end Mm -hmm. about um her policies and her getting the nobel peace prize i thought that was cool yeah that was cool but also it was um it was very enlightening to her yeah which i think a lot of people need that enlightenment sometimes yeah i mean because that's what she started noticing like she had already she was already doing so many things for the community and helping out but i think um a lot of the time, older people are often ignored. Forgotten. Yeah, yeah, they're ignored. They're forgotten. And I guess as she was getting older in age, she just was like, most of the people who are talking about this are older women, and they have a reason to talk about it. They uh, they want to yeah. talk. They want to be heard. Yeah, yeah. Geez, now it's really depressing. I know. Oh my god. But it's also like really great what they're doing with Hull House now. They've got this thing later in the month, I think, or next month about um, getting people to vote, Mm -hmm. and it's really cool stuff. So, if you're in Chicago, go visit Hull House if you haven't. Because I want to (laughs) go. Put it on the list. We'll put it on the list. The babies want to go, too. They just started peeping. Beep, 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 beep. Okay. Alright, well, if you enjoyed that... Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram on at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full names, Myths and Misfortunes. You can also email us at MythsandMisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. You better rate, review, and subscribe. That was aggressive. (laughs) That was so aggressive, but I'm sorry. Side note, you just made me think of uh, 90 Day Fiance. Oh my god, why? Well, no, because this woman's like, it is my God-given right to get married in the United States of America. It is my tax-paying right to get married in the United States of America. And I'm just sitting here like, uh, no. (laughs) I'm confused. Was she American? Yeah, she's American. Why couldn't she get married here? Because her fiance's visa got rejected. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it 
I don't think it yeah. doesn't work like no. that. No, no, no. So I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's Please my God-given rate- right for you to rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> Please, please rate, review, subscribe if you enjoy our silly nonsense. If you don't, send us an email. Tell us why so we can make fun of you. Or tell us something else so that maybe we could cover it. Seriously? Yeah, if you have suggestions, let us know. Thanks so much for listening. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.